0: You're listening to the best of A Place of Peace.
1: Hello, everyone, and happy birthday, America, on your 244th birthday. To celebrate that birthday, we are rebroadcasting my interview with the 38th President of the United States, Gerald Ford who talks about the influence God had in his decision to pardon Richard Nixon. Peace does not begin with presidents and prime ministers. It begins with you and me. It must be in our hearts before it can be in our homes. It must be in our homes before it can be in the community. It must be in our communities before it can spread to our country and from the country to the world. The process, however, cannot be reversed. We cannot expect five people in Paris or Geneva or New York to successfully negotiate peace for the world without peace in their own hearts. But what is peace? Where do I find peace? How can I be peace? These are all the questions we will seek to answer on this show, so that no matter our external circumstances, no matter the turbulence of our culture, internally, we reside in a place of peace. We will talk with, yes, theologians and philosophers, of course, clergy and religious, but we will also talk with artists, writers, musicians, playwrights, and ordinary folk like you and I. It is none of these today, however, that is the first interview on A Place of Peace. It is, maybe to your shock, a politician This is a man who destroyed his political future with a decision to bring peace to our country and thus lived with peace in his own heart, believing he had done the right thing. That man was Gerald Ford and that decision was the pardon of Richard Nixon. I interviewed President Ford for a book I wrote called The Daniel Dilemma many years ago. The subject matter was the moral man in the public arena, and President Ford was a chapter in the book. In order to assure accurate quotes, I taped the interview. This is the first time the interview has ever been aired. In it, the former president talks about the greatest religious influences in his life, something he seldom ever talked about. And what were the factors that most influenced his most agonizing political decision, the pardon of Richard Nixon? We began the interview discussing the commencement address he was to deliver to his son Mike's graduation class the following day.
0: But I talk about the dedication that individuals such as myself have to a spiritual conviction and a willingness to have a faith in God and Jesus Christ and a recognition at the same time that the things that I believe in because of my religious training sometimes have to be moderated in the realism of the life which we all live I don't think that's a compromise of character, it's a a recognition that all of us, including myself, are far from perfect. But if we don't have that light of conviction as to the perfection of the world, we never get any place from the bottom, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. So um, in my case, that training came from my mother And my Uh, stepfather—I barely knew my father, so his impact on my life would be.
1: Was that very difficult? I mean, when you—it must have been when you saw him suddenly and didn't know (coughs) he even existed.
0: It was a very difficult, immediate situation. But what it really did was to uh, reaffirm my love affection for my stepfather because he was a person who had uh, adopted me and was uh, going through great financial difficulties trying to raise a family of 4 and my real father was a person of some affluence and he was not doing or hadn't done as much as the court said he should have done for a long period of time so the meeting with him uh, showed the contrast of a person who was really trying to raise a family under most difficult hardships, and a meeting with your own blood—a person who was a person of some means, but who was not willing to help at a time when I. Uh, as one member of the family needed financial support. So
1: you two dollars a week, you? I was
0: making two dollars a week working uh, an hour and a half a day at a, a hash joint. I mean, a eating place, not a hash <laughs> joint in the sense I mean, that the they use still it. Around uh, you <laughs> uh, but uh, my stepfather and mother were uh, very devoted to the church. They weren't zealots, but they uh, brought us up under the uh, influence of the Episcopal Church and went to Sunday school and did all of those things. But it was the daily living in the home that uh, sort of made us devoted to the principles that uh, I think I and my three brothers uh, have lived all their lives.
1: What did you most admire about your mother and
0: your stepfather? Well, my mother um, was a very gregarious person. She was always on the move. I don't think she had an enemy in the world. And she had literally thousands That's of. That's where you get friends. that on the move. <laughs> I, I think I inherited some of her characteristics, but she belonged to many, many organizations, the garden club, the. D.A.R., the Woman's City Club, uh, various hospital guilds, uh, anything that was had any relationship to people
1: mm-hmm.
0: she was a part of. and
1: uh, She loved people.
0: She uh, loved them uh, regardless of their station in life. She was 70-something when she died and she had had many Illnesses. She had two mastectomies. Yeah. She had uh, diabetes. She had a high yeah. blood pressure. Uh, but uh, she uh, never wanted a lingering illness, and never had one, thank goodness. She always wanted to die in her with her boots on. She used to say. Well, she literally did. Mm-hmm. She dropped dead in church.
1: Is that right? With
0: a heart attack we looked at her uh, schedule for the next month. She had a date book. And she had luncheons five out of seven days for the next month and I don't know how many dinners. But uh, she lived a life of uh, real action, but action related to people and trying to help people. Uh So uh, I guess I get some of my... uh, Relationships with people and my desire to keep moving from her.
1: How about it? John Byrne says it's just this tremendous energy. He said he was always telling you, "Come on now, take it easy, take it easy." And he well, said,
0: that's hey, true.
1: But isn't that true? Do you think that energy that you just—it's almost uh, physical energy. Well,
0: almost I almost demands you. I get bored sitting around, and disagreeable too. And uh, I think John's analysis is right, that uh, I just can't sit still, and it's true also that he used to give me the devil all the time to slow down and to uh, stop doing things. But I inherited a a substantial part of that from my mother. But my stepfather uh, was uh, an equally active person, neither one of them went to college, my stepfather finished the 8th grade, Mm. and my mother, I guess, had one year in college, and she wasn't very academically inclined, but that didn't make any difference because they both had this very uh, strong feeling of participation with people, the community, and um, living in an atmosphere like that, you sort of uh, inherited it. Wanted to do emulate what they were doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Was would but you say that's the strongest thing you got from your stepfather too?
0: Yes, uh, he was uh, in his own way, just as active among organizations. He was very active in fraternal organization, the Shrine, the sonic organizations, the Elks. He was uh, active also in the, uh, what they called the, well, it was an organ sort of an auxiliary to the local police. Mm-hmm. He believed firmly in uh, the job the police were doing, and he was a part of an organization of non officers who helped the police with their problem. Uh, he eventually uh, was drafted to get into Republican politics. And uh, was never an office holder, but was county chairman and active in that way. Mm-hmm. So the whole atmosphere in the home was one of uh, doing things in the community to try and help the community, whether it was in uh, one organization or another.
1: Was there much talk about religion or?
0: I wouldn't say that we talked about religion per se the family tried to live a spiritual life now mike uh, is uh, he hasn't really settled on whether he's going to be one denomination or another really at least he's not going to take his degree or get ordained in a particular religion as of now i understand if he wants to be ordained if that's the right word in a particular denomination, he has to take another couple of months, uh, but he's still uncertain as to just what direction. When he
1: comes out of the seminary, does he come out as as a minister?
0: No, he comes out with a degree in theology, theology but without a designation as to which denomination.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting, too, to ask subjects, because everybody has such an interesting... Different perception. When you think of how do you perceive God? Do you, I mean, a formal deity, or is he is he a um, someone close, or can uh, you see him more as a personal type
0: of thing? I perceive him uh, not as something formal, and yet it's something that I rely on. I couldn't draw a picture. It's hard to describe it in words. I think it's something inward. And since it is inward, it's very personal yeah. to me and something that I don't and uh, haven't uh, talked about in the, a public forum. I feel uncomfortable uh, whenever questions are really asked about it because uh, I haven't sat down and written out precisely.
1: Yeah. I don't think anyone is,
0: it's not... It would be hard for me and yet, it's a feeling within that yeah. is important to me.
1: Some people, though, are for instance, I said to Don Schulit, "Are you closer to God the Father, or are you closer to God the Son? Are you, some people feel a like great closeness to Christ?" He said, "God the Father," which is interesting. Some people, of course, feel Mark Hatfield said, "Christ." Of course, in some way, you have to. In some way, I think personalize in to uh, have any kind of Communication.
0: Mm-hmm. I think with uh, my association with Mike and his dedication to Jesus Christ, today I would feel closer to Jesus Christ than I would God the Father. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been sort of an evolutionary transition, and I think Mike's had a big impact in that regard.
1: Because of his closeness. That's right. But originally it would be more God the Father. That's that you right.
0: Mm-hmm. Perceived. But I don't feel that that has significantly changed my my own spiritual feeling because it is so personal. Uh, If I had to give a lecture every day or make a speech uh, on the subject, it would still be difficult to write down in specifics, but it's an inward feeling that has come about because of my association with Mike and Mike's discussions with me and some of the things that we've talked about.
1: I talked to Al Quee, and he recalled the first time that you ever had the prayer meeting. Do you remember that first meeting? He said everybody at the end of it had tears in their eyes.
0: I think uh, it was a very emotional uh, gathering, and it was a different group, you know, with... uh, Al and Mel and Charlie Goodell and myself. But it it came at a time and it was a circumstance uh, which was important to all four of us. And then when Charlie left, uh, John Rhodes uh, became a part of it. And it's been very...
1: What do you get from that, do you think?
0: Again, it's pretty hard to sit down, uh, Peggy, and write out or to say... Mm-hmm in an articulate way what you get out of it. It's, I
1: guess it's wrong. Huh? It's
0: not the uh, the getting of something. It's the, the community of feeling with three other people that you feel strongly about. And I think it's reciprocated that you're just taking five minutes or ten minutes, whatever the time is, to get together, to uh, show your... Uh, Spiritual appreciation and your spiritual hope for the future.
1: Did it come to mean more to you when you became president or when you became vice president and you were going through a really traumatic
0: I would say yes because uh, I knew what they were doing, the other three, and trying to help me, and I responded because, with their help, it was easier to try and go through those difficult times. Mm
1: -hmm. You've always had a... uh, In fact, I I would say at least six people said, well, he never wears his religion on his sleeve, and used those exact phrases. And Bob Teeter was saying that in the election. The moral fervor play and this this new almost religious revival in the United States played an enormous kind of subterranean role in electing Jimmy Carter and here you are a man equally religious or more so but you really re- do you feel that you're abusing religion if you if you talk about it or let it show
0: I strongly uh, disagree with those who directly or indirectly try to exploit a religious conviction. And I think we've been fortunate in this country there's been a minimum of that. It would just be uh, so foreign to my own beliefs for me to try and get up and sell a political audience that they should vote for me because I have certain religious or spiritual convictions. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing it. I think it would...
1: And yet Christ said, go and teach all nations. You're between the fact that he said, share the gift, and the fact you don't want to abuse it.
0: But there is a difference, I think, in how you do it, or the circumstances that you uh, get involved in in the process. I would not hesitate at all to... uh, be a Sunday school teacher as I was for about a year when I first came back from the service before Mm -hmm. Betty and I were married. I used to teach uh, a Sunday school class at uh, Grace Episcopal Church in Grand Rapids. I think that's a very very valid way in which a person uh, can talk about his spiritual beliefs, particularly to young people. Of course, I wasn't in politics as an active participant at that time. But to go to a political meeting and use one's convictions in trying to persuade them to vote for you is just foreign to my, uh, my beliefs across the board.
1: Mm-hmm. Let's get into the fact that what, what religion, as we said, really means to you it's living it. And what I'm trying to do with each chapter is to examine a particular crisis decision in their lives. Um, What would you say, and I can almost guess what you're going to answer, was the most agonizing decision of your career?
0: Probably the pardon of Richard Nixon. Yeah,
1: that's what I...
0: That had to be very personal in the sense that nobody else... I was the only one who could sign that document.
1: When did you actually start thinking about the pardon?
0: I never really gave it any thought until I was preparing for my first press conference. I forgot when it came, within a week or so after the time I was sworn in. We had a group of seven or eight people and the people in the White House staff that were trying to Brief me on what the questions might be from the press, and I was somewhat surprised that they thought that a number of those questions would involve what I would do or what I wouldn't do about the tapes, mm-hmm. about uh, Mr. Nixon's mm-hmm. status, and sure enough, at that press conference there were four or five questions out of
1: Gally, maybe even more.
0: I've forgotten yeah. just exactly how many, but at least... Uh, the questions were very uh, specific, and just because they were so uh, concerned in the press, I knew the public was inevitably going to be uh, interested. and I could foresee, Peggy, after that press conference, that every press conference I had from then until whatever Mr. Nixon's fate would be in the courts, would be dominated by one question or another, probably many and I just figured that I ought to start thinking as to what, how best I could allocate my time in the job. If I had to spend 25% of my time in the job uh, worrying about legal advice from my counsel, legal advice from the Department of Justice on what ought to be done about Mr. Nixon and his problems, when I should be working 100% of my time on unemployment, on problems of inflation, foreign relations. It just seemed to me that uh, I ought to ask for God's help, which I did, and I have no apologies for it, and I think the reaction I got was that what I did was right, and uh, his help was very helpful. And so I had to uh, get advice on technical aspects of it, but the real decision was uh, predicated on my conviction as to what was in the best interest of the country, and there were conflicts. People, of course, thought uh, that Mr. Nixon was guilty, that he ought to go to trial, and that's a very integral part of our society. On the other hand, I had to look at it from another point of view, which was what was in the best interest of the country as far as the president was concerned, and you had to balance all those conflicting arguments and I think the prayers that I said and the the asking of help when I came right down to it were the determining factors
1: former Vice President Dick Cheney who served as President Ford's chief of staff talked about the political fallout that resulted from the pardon
2: Uh, there was no reason at all for him to make that decision to do that except his own firm conviction that until he'd done that uh, the nation was never going to be able to get on with its business uh, that Watergate would dominate everything else and the prospective trial of the former president um, the continual question as to whether he would or wouldn't get a pardon and so forth would would so dominate the next two years that we couldn't begin to address energy problems, economic problems, foreign policy problems and again uh, from his Standing in the polls uh, the first week after he was in office of some 71 or 72% the Gallup poll on about a 3% negative rating as a result of the pardon he dropped uh, sharply down into the 50 45 50 percent range a very clear price he paid for taking that action never really No, we eventually got up the campaign back up in the mid-50s yeah. we were remotely never, never No, and every presence standing uh, falls over time, but uh, that kind of sharp Drop-off, I think, is unprecedented. But I'm—I'd be confident, although I don't know for a fact in this area, that he was well aware of the, the uh, problem there, that that was going to create for him personally. But went ahead and made the decision because he thought it was the right thing to do.
1: I hope you enjoyed this rebroadcast of my interview with the 38th President of the United States, Gerald Ford. Our salute to the Fourth of July. Once again, happy 244th birthday, America. I want you to know that very soon we will begin our series of programs on my journey to Medjugorje, which I concluded last evening after 24 straight hours of travel from Bosnia-Herzegovina to America. Let me say it was a blessed trip, and I am really eager to share those blessings with you. It was the 40th anniversary of Mary's first apparitions there, where it is said she is still appearing daily. 378 priests from all over the world con-celebrated the Anniversary Mass for massive crowds of pilgrims who endured near 100 degree heat to thank Our Lady for coming to stay with us so long. In the ensuing weeks we will have shows with the pilgrims, with the visionary, with priests who will share their experiences with us about their week in this extraordinary village so far removed from the fear and anxiety we experience in the rest of the world. I hope you will be with us for these exceptional moments. Many of you may not be able to make such an arduous journey to Medjugorje. That's okay. We will bring Medjugorje to you. The most important aspect of Medjugorje is Mary's prescription for processing to paradise, her program for sainthood which he gives us in monthly doses of messages. We will share those messages with you. Till next week, this is Peggy Stanton, hoping you will join me on A Place of Peace.